Good evening and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dean Camilleri. And I'm Laura McKillop. We'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our fortnightly Q&A. Tonight we're fortunate enough to be speaking with Demi from Fifth Quadrant Dog Sports Club. And if we do get questions in tonight, we have struggled with a few questions with our new format. Um, Demi will be picking who he thinks has asked the best question and I will win a bag of Enduro Pinegy Food for Working Dogs with Real Kangaroo Meat. Hey, you going, brother? Hey, good. How are you? Not too bad, thanks, mate. Uh, what did your day consist of today, mate? Um, a lot of dogs, like usual, training. <laughs> uh, a lot of rain. <laughs> a lot of um, rain? Yeah, it was raining over at Heathcote, so on and off. Lucky you. Yeah. We, we just um, got the wind here, but we didn't get any rain, just a couple of drops, nothing. Oh, we, we had a bit of rain at home. Yeah, yeah I wish, Not we, got, enough, wish but... we got some bloody more, I tell you. <laughs> mate, do you want to obviously we introduce yourself as Demi already? Mate, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I pretty much. Am I going to give a bit of a life story here? Yeah, why not? Yeah, it started <laughs> 31 years ago. There was a twinkle in Dad's eyes. <laughs> yeah, so I, I pretty much I was born here. Then I um, moved overseas to a Greek island. Um, where my parents were originally from. I lived my teenage years there. Um, always had German Shepherds. Um, had one here, had one over there. Um, then when I was about 19, 20, uh, came back to Australia. Um, I'd done a uh, structural engineering diploma at TAFE, um, but I quickly realized that the office isn't for me. So I wanted something hands-on. Um, so then I started carpentry. Um, and at the same time, I was sort of dealing with dogs as a hobby. Um, just had my own dogs that I was um, wanting to compete with sports with. Um, and then, yeah, um, recently left carpentry and started doing dog training full-time. I'm currently the head dog trainer at Heathcote in Hanrob. Um, so, yeah, that's a real quick sort of story, not wasting too much time on the... No, that's cool. What, <laughs> what, what brought you back to Australia? Because a Greek island sounds pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> Great place to live your teenage years, um, but the economy sort of went into a deep recession. So... We moved back here with the whole family. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely didn't learn much. I was still involved with dogs over there, but um, it was kind of old school stuff, like don't feed them raw meat because they're going to become aggressive. But so never fed my German Shepherd raw meat, but he was still super aggressive. So I was like, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then there was a few guys over there. So there was a guy that was local that... Um, came over from Germany and imported some uh, showline shepherds, but the ones, the German ones that would still practice in IGP. So they were still uh, had pretty good working temperaments. And there was one Malinois, I remember seeing a guy that imported it from America. He lived in America and moved back because he was originally from there. Um, and I'm pretty sure that was a ring dog because the sort of commands that he was giving that dog and what I could remember from it reminded me of sort of, um, ring sports so he had french commands and um that sort of exercises the dog could do back then which i had no idea about back then i realized after i started getting involved with dogs over here that oh that's what i was 
looking at six, seven years ago back home. Um, what's, what's ring sports? Uh, so ring sports, there's a few different ring sports. They're pretty, they're more common in Europe. So you've got like French ring, you've got Belgian ring, you've got the KMPV, which is kind of a, it's a bit similar, but different, I guess, to the, to the ring sports. But um, they typically consist of a component of obedience, jumps and a character phase or protection phase similar to IGP. Um, the two most popular ones would be French ring and Belgian ring and Mondia ring is kind of a cross in the middle. Um, and it was, it was kind of made because the people from the ring sports of different countries wanted to compete, <coughs> sorry, wanted to compete with each other in um, sort of the same sport. So they got pieces out of everything and and um, made Mondia rings so they could all come from all over the world and compete in that one competition. Yeah. So, so do you want to tell us a little bit about Mondia ring? Like what typically would we see if we were so, to attend one of your days? Yeah. So, um, again, it it's, depends on um, – the age of the dogs and, and what we're working on. But um, if you visited a typical day at the club, we'd have dogs at different stages. So we have dogs that need to work on control around decoys. So there's a lot of work uh, that um, involves um, the guy that the, the dog would be biting called the decoy and a lot of control work from us. So sending the dog to bite, recalling it back, doing obedience to obtain the bite. Um, we do a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, because that's usually where the dogs fall short. And most of the points are in the control work around the biting. So that's what we focus on a lot. We do still do a lot of jumps. We try and um, limit how often we do maximum jumps because you can get um, health issues and stuff if you stress a dog too much, doing too much jumping. Uh, and obviously a lot of obedience, but. Typically, the obedience I encourage people to do on their own at home in their free time. Um, overseas, people would train three, four times a week with their club. Over here, we're not that um, we're not that lucky. So, the one time a week that we do have, and all the teams there, you want to be working on the things that you need the team for. Um, yeah. The basic sort of obedience components we prefer to do at home on our own, and then talk about stuff we're struggling with together at the club. In, in retrieval's part of your obedience session as well, I see. Uh, yeah, we do have a retrieve. And um, so there's three different levels. Um, the retrieve starts from level one, but as you go up in the levels, the retrieve item becomes a lot a lot more complex. So um, the retrieve item can be anything. It can't be metal and it can't be over a, a that, kilo. That's what I'm asking because I seen I was watching a bit and I seen you guys throw a watering can. And the dog had to retrieve a watering can. I'm just like, yeah. what? Yeah. The? yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole purpose of Mondeering. So um, it's about the dog being versatile and it's a bit different to IGP where it's all about the precision, which is again, very hard to obtain, but it's a, it's a different skill to teaching a dog to be able to retrieve anything anywhere with any distractions. So there's the, you can have a wet sponge that the dog needs to retrieve. There's a lot of different textures you need to teach the dog to be able to hold. Um, different ways to pick up items. It's not always the same sort of item. So you can't expect the same speed and sort of um, fanciness that you, you can 
see in IGP, but the dogs are a lot more well educated in terms of um, a variety of things. Variety of things, yeah. So, um, what sort of dog suits that sport? Um, it's definitely a Malinois German Shepherd dominant sport. Um, a lot of things sort of cancel out other breeds. Uh, the jumps sometimes cancel out bigger dogs because, um, I mean, it's difficult to find a Rottweiler that can jump a two-meter palisade, um, and that's going to be able to do a half an hour routine. They'll usually gas out pretty quick. Uh, and even within the Malinois sort of gene pool, there's specific ones that are better at it. Um, a lot of the bigger dogs, again, they'll gas out quick. Um you need to have a dog that can support a lot of control. So people see all the biting and they think, oh, you just need a crazy dog that bites. But in reality, you need a dog that is um, well balanced. So you can't really do the sport with a one-dimensional dog. Um, you need something that's got a lot of different uh, qualities. And we talking about that, like we spoke the other day about like when you were here, we were mucking around some stock dogs and mm. we spoke about that, that last foot and yeah. dogs keeping their head on, on stock and not going in and blowing the stock and, um, or wanting to actually come in where some don't. So they're a bit afraid and you, um, compared that to what you guys do with bite work as well. Yeah. Similar, similar concept. It was interesting listening to that. Um, cause with us, everyone, everyone sort of sees a dog that bites well. And they go, oh, that's a strong dog. And um, obviously the training comes into play and is a big part of it. But in with if you have someone that's experienced and knows what they're looking at, you, they'll they'll know really quick um, if if a dog is actually strong or not. Because it's not about just how they bite and how powerfully they bite. It's about how much control they can support and still bite the same way. So. A dog that's never been taught to a stop attack or a, even an out. Some people don't even teach the dog an out. Um, all that sort of control stuff takes away from the dog. And if the dog is still biting the same way it did before all that control was laid in, then that's a stronger dog. But um, a dog that's just crazy and goes and bites really well uh, and and um, can't sort of control itself, it's not necessarily a, a headstrong dog. And you find those bite, those dogs start to like, um, like piano bite, like start going up and down and moving around a bit and a little bit less unstable. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you see that in, especially when you're layering it, it's a, probably a bit different to stock dogs, especially when we're layering in control, you will see the best of dogs start to do that sort of stuff when you're layering in control. And some of them, some of them get through it and they bite really well after that. And some of them sort of hit a wall and you need to take it a bit, a bit easier on them um, but if you don't train the dogs to a high enough level then you're never going to see that stuff so the training for the sport exposes all that and it allows you to see where the dog is going to start falling apart if all you do is just uh, bites and you're not you're not um, adding control to the dog you're not really seeing what its true capabilities are and its true strengths are so um, I know you've had a bit of experience with some stock dog handlers and stuff. What other sort of similarities do you see between the two or is there any between what you do and what, what they do? 
Yeah, definitely. So what I noticed straight away is, um, I guess, in the protection dog world, the old school method of training was you'd build a dog up for 12 months, make it crazy, um, so you had a lot to chip away at um, when you start layering in the in the control. And from what I've heard, that was probably still a common thing in the stock dog world. I don't, Dan can probably correct me if... If I'm yeah, no, yeah, some guys go build a lot of some people build a lot more desire in dogs before then they start to, to train on them. To train them, right? yeah. The more, the more desire you build, well, then the little bit more control you can start to put in place, like you say, and start the layer yeah. thing. Yeah, um, and that's still that still works well with certain dogs, um, but that's changed a little bit in the protection world. And we do a lot of what you guys would call dry training. So we teach the dog skills away from the decoys, the, the guy that. The dog's going to be biting. We teach them with food and toys um, in a quiet environment at home or whatever before we apply those skills in a stressful situation or a high arousal situation. Um, and I guess, yeah, that's been where most of the innovation has, has sort of come into the training is um, how much skills you can teach the dog away from the finished picture that you want to see. Mm -hmm. Do, do you find that sometimes that dogs get a bit confused when you do put them in front of a decoy when you have been doing stuff at home to start with? Yeah, there's definitely a transition phase. Um, it does it does help a lot though. Um, sometimes the amount of pressure you'll need is is halved, sometimes less when you move on to a decoy. Um, but just it, it depends as well how you do it. So you need a good decoy. That's the other thing. Um, it's, it's about working in a team. Like, I can't do everything myself. But that's why, I guess, with you guys, you'll put dogs on easier sheep and harder sheep. Um, with me, I can tell the guy in the suit, hey, stop moving, hey, do this, hey, do that, and I can um, gain control of my dog if I need to or bring the arousal level a bit bit lower so I can we can change what we're doing and manage it. So what makes a good decoy and how big of a – uh, impact as a decoy having the development of a protection dog? Yeah, great question. Um, Thanks, mate. You can't give me the food, though. <laughs> <laughs> so especially, like, talking about Mondeering specifically, um, again, in in ring three, which is the highest level out of 400 points, I think 260 of them are bite work points. So, and in the bite work, there's certain exercises that you need multiple decoys. Um, a, a lot of like the, the biggest issue I see is with, with inexperienced decoys or decoys that aren't skilled enough. They, um, they try and do everything very incrementally. Um, they'll work on, we're going to work on just scripts now. Now we're just going to introduce the stick very slowly and we're going to do one target for this amount of time. If you want to do monitoring, your decoy needs to be able to do multiple things at the same time. So it's it's not uncommon that at the same time we're working on building a dog's bite and its grip, we're also at the same time teaching it an exercise, at the same time desensitizing it to stresses like a clatter stick or, or accessories. Um, then you'd need to bring the dog back from control sometimes. If, you, if the handler needs to out the dog, you need to reward the out. So... It takes a lot of a lot of 
hours in the suit, a lot of years in the suit to develop that skill, to be able to do that fluently and not just be able to work on one specific thing at the same time. Um, and if you want to develop a dog for competition, you need to move quickly, slowly, if that makes sense. Um, if you're trying to do everything very incrementally, the dog will have arthritis before it's ready to compete. <laughs> yeah. So the decoy is everything in wandering. Um, that's where I struggled a lot with, with my dog because I'd done everything myself. She was used to working only with, with one person. Um, it caused certain issues. I was lucky enough. Um, I met some great guys that we train with still, still today and they helped me out and I could get to where I sort of got with my dog because of them. I wouldn't have been able to without them um, because I didn't have people skilled enough to be able to, to work with my dog. Um, it, it can set your training back. It can make or break your training pretty much. Um, the decoy that you work with, it's very important. How do you teach someone to, to be a good decoy then? After <laughs> slowly. <laughs> yeah. So, look, there's definitely a natural talent component. Um, but, yeah, everyone can sort of help. Everyone can jump in the suit and help with basic exercises. Um, when it comes to working with difficult dogs, like you need someone that's a bit naturally talented so you can you don't have to micromanage them all the time, but you'd have to start with teaching them, breaking everything down and teaching them step by step. So the first thing would be basic presentations, how to hold a stick. Um, I see even experienced decoys, they're holding a clatter stick and the sticks hanging out half a foot under their arm. Like that's dangerous for the dog. That's, that's decoying 101. Um, so a clatter stick uh, is a stick with like numerous sticks in there. So it's making a ginger yeah, it's, it's a piece of bamboo and they, we split it up. Um, it's just so it makes it makes sort of a noise and then we can sort of pair that noise with a stimulus so you typically a prey um, prey movement the same way you use your your mouth to um, when you're working your stock dogs to bring he doesn't want to make the noise he doesn't <laughs> make <laughs> <laughs> now you do the well, I do that one as well yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we use the clutter stick in a similar way um, where we can help bring, bring the dog's sort of attitude back with it sometimes if we need to. But, yeah, in terms of training up new decoys, um, it is a long process. It it just – you need someone that's committed. You need someone that's happy to get bruised up every week. You need someone that's happy to, to – you know, I've cracked ribs. I've been bitten multiple times. I've sprained my ankles. Um, yeah. It here, takes, I, here I was about to ask, how do you go in the in the bite suit? But I think you've answered that one. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think it's probably what, what I could compare it to is um, when I came and visited Dan, he had me in the yard with a, a few sheep and one of his young dogs. Was it Jane or is it Jane or Jade? Uh, Leia, my colleague. Leia? Oh, uh, yeah. Great little dog. But I was like, mate, I've got no idea what I'm doing. So just tell me what to do. And he was like, okay, walk this way, walk this way. You're holding that wrong. You're doing this wrong. So I'm, I'm used to using my clatter stick to help engage the dog with me. Um, or if I'm using a flirt pole, for example, uh, I'm using it to help re-engage the dog with me. Whereas you guys are using spatial pressure to move the dog away. So I was holding like the pipe with the bag and, and I'm trying to use it like a clatter stick. And I'm like, oh, no, the, the, the dog wants to move away from this. It's a signal to move away from it, not a signal to come towards it. So 
my sort of mechanics is completely, completely different. But um, I guess you could compare teaching someone to decoy with teaching someone to um, train a stock dog on sheep. So experience and just a, an attitude to have a go. Yeah. You could compare it to that. It's something that's going to take time and going to take um, experience and you're going to put them in with easy sheep first and yeah. And I noticed like by watching a bit of monitoring, you guys do a lot of leg bites. Yep. Why, why specifically the leg bite? Um, so in our sport, the decoy is allowed to move and we don't just have one single target. So in IGP, for example, it's all about the precision and the speed um, and the, the gripping style. So there's one target there for the dog to take. Um, in in wandering, the decoy is allowed to move and he's using the, the stick to block the dog on the entry to test sort of its courage. Um, a dog that comes up for the arms is very easy to block with the stick. So if a dog is jumping up, going for my left arm, all I have to do is hold the stick there and the dog's gonna bump into it and fall onto the ground. And the moment the dog is is entering the bite, the clock starts. So um, if your dog is five seconds slow to bite, that would be 10 points, I think, that you lose off that attack. Um, with your feet, your both feet need to be on the ground and then we'll teach the dog pivoting techniques. So if the dog's going for one leg and you move that leg, we'll teach the dog to change target last minute. Um, so then you're not losing seconds off the bite on the entry. So it's pretty much all about points. Um, leg, legs, are, you always need one leg on the ground. So we teach a lot of leg targets. But in saying that, we also te teach upper body targets. We just keep it in a good balance. So we teach our dog all targets from young. And depending on the dog, we'll do more of one leg than the other or we'll teach it it's very dog dependent, but we typically have all dogs on on legs. But yeah, that's the reason we do a lot of leg bites. Yeah, cool. And do you have a cue to grab a leg or to grab an arm, or your cues just going to grab? Um, the, so you can put a cue if the decoy isn't moving, but we typically don't do that. the The cue of where the dog should bite is what the decoy is doing. So, for example, if the dog's going for if the decoy is calling the dog for a left leg and the dog's going for that left leg, and then the decoy moves the left leg, that's a cue to take the other leg. Yeah, right. So if cues? you're here in my place and I've just had just my sleeve, is your dog going to take my sleeve and my leg off? <laughs> Funny you say that because um, a, a couple of days ago we were training and um, Jordan, uh, one of my good mates that we train together all the time, he just had the, the suit, the tops suit on and he didn't have oh, a leg one and uh, yeah he got bit in the knee by accident um <laughs> but yeah look my dog's my good dog's really nice. dog. sorry good recall on that dog yeah she's she, I, she he could stop her straight away they have a good relationship because we, we Lucky Jordan. um and typically we want our decoys to be able to give our dogs commands because it helps in our training to teach exercises so if you're going to teach super complex exercises like um, our object guard or the the escorting the decoy the decoy around where they escape, the decoy needs to be able to direct the dog to help it and teach it what the exercise is about. Um, so yeah, he can tell my dog to out and she'll out off him. Um, but yeah, he he stopped her straight away. He just said, "Oi!" and she. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. I grabbed those. I grabbed it as well, and then we put it back up on my arm. But you make sure he's got the legs, the pants on next I was time. Say that <laughs> yeah. <one too. laughs> well, he's got massive quads as well, so she may have thought that he was in a suit. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. Mate, why for you? Why Mondia Ring? What what was the attraction to it? Oh, another great question. <laughs> um, so when I first got my Malinois, I was actually doing both, but I had great ambitions. Like everyone that gets their first sport dog, they want to do everything. They want to do every sport. They want to win everything. Um, so I joined an IGP club at the same time I was doing Mondia Ring um, with a guy called Brad Fellow up near Gosford. Um, and he did help me a lot. I learned a lot training with him and training for IGP. Um, I do like the precision components about it and all that, but something about monitoring just not that I don't like IGP. I really enjoy training for IGP and watching it. And I appreciate the precision components in it and, um, and all that. But I think the, the training that's required for monitoring is more sort of, um appealing to me so um doing a retrieve with dumbbells every week gets a bit boring for me mm -hmm. i've i like pushing things to the limit and i do like pushing them to the limit in terms of speed and precision but i in terms of my training style i like i like pushing it in a different way than monitoring sort of style so i i can retrieve traffic cones with my dog i've done a plastic chairs that you'd sit on. I do metal objects. I just keep making it harder and harder every time. Um, that's what I enjoy. So that's so, so, sort of what drew me to Mondiaring. I also like the technique in the suit. So in my mind, if you're going to do a suit sport, um, your dog should know technique and multiple targets. So the single target, I like that that's in other sports. It's just not my thing. I like the technique sort of training for monitoring. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing um, specific. It's just the, the, the whole sport in itself was a little bit more appealing to me than, than IGP. So I, I guess I would have done both and I wanted to do both. But I, I came to a point where there was a lot of exercises clashing. Um, and I had to make a decision. So that's why yeah. I still want to compete in IGP again at some point. Um, but yeah. And, and from the way we're talking, I'm assuming you, you mentioned like 400 points in ring three there. Mm -hmm. So you start with that points and you lose points as you go. You're not yeah. Gaining. yeah, that's right. So everyone starts with 400 points and then um, as you do your exercises, you'll get minus for this, minus for this, minus for that. And at the end, you'll get your, your total. And, left. and then you have like whatever you need to achieve to be in that particular ring or yeah, so, win for that, for that grade. Uh, you need to get more than 300 points um, to pass a level three. Yep. Um but yeah, I think in the in the world championship it works a bit different. It's pretty it's not uncommon for for dogs to to be on the podium and not even have a passing score. Um just because of the complexity of the of the trials. So they every time everything's different. Um 
your dog could make 390 points in one trial then the next trial it could make 200. yeah that's that's not uncommon um because so dog, yeah, yeah. There, there could be a picture your dog's never seen before and it will completely blow an exercise so and there's certain exercises that are worth 50 points 30 points um so you have a big variance in what you're scoring and you, you mentioned Henrob there earlier, and I noticed um, as well maybe a few weeks ago that um, you had Fletch and Heine. Oh, yeah. Out there? Yeah. And was that your dog that put a couple of bites on him? <laughs> yeah, so that one of them was my dog, yeah, um, and the other dog was the other guy. The other dogs were from the club as well. Um, but, yeah, Dane and Nikki West actually hooked us up with them because they'd done a little episode with them as well. Yeah, um, and then Dane was kind enough to pass out my number over, and then they called us. But yeah, that was that was my dog biting um, Maddie Johns and um, Leon, their camera guy, at the end as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> that, that yeah. was pretty cool, mate. But they they look like they were actually packing it in, like in the video, where they shit and bricks. Yeah. Um, Especially when I got Lupo out, um, my friend Adam's dog, I took him with me for the day. And, yeah, he's a bigger male and he he goes into what we call cappuccino mode where he starts frothing everywhere and barking. Um, and, yeah, I was holding him in front of Maddie Johns and I was stirring him a bit like, oh, I'm going to lose control of the dog and that. And he was, yeah, <laughs> he, was, he was pretty – they did get pretty bruised up. <laughs> um, but – yeah, it was it was legit. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the uh, fifth quadrant um, club, mate. Dog sports club. Well, first of all, where does where does the name come from? <laughs> Another good question. Um, look, the name is self-explanatory if you understand the science and how it applies to dogs and how. Um, important and not important it is to look at it from that sort of perspective but yeah if you understand dogs um it, it kind of makes sense a lot of people are like oh that doesn't make sense if the fifth quadrant what's that but um if you work with dogs and you understand them you'll see that you can't think of training in terms of boxes so you're training the dog you're not going oh i'm using positive reinforcement here i'm using negative reinforcement here i'm using um you're just training the dog so that's why we call it fifth quadrant because we're just training the dog. We're not worried about what quadrant we're working in and what we're doing. It's like the dog's in front of us. This is what it needs. This is what we're going to do. Mate, for some of our people, listeners that don't understand the quadrants, do you, do you want to explain the quadrants in regard to operant conditioning? Yeah, I can give a quick brief. Yeah. Because all I'm thinking is five is five and quadrant there's four <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't understand what you're talking about <laughs> yeah so the the four quadrants are, are pretty much positive and negative reinforcement and punishment and they pretty mu much explain for for example um if you're giving something to the dog or removing something from the dog if you're reinforcing or punishing behavior it sort of puts each um each thing into its own into one of those four sort of categories um but it's not it's definitely not the be all and end all in dog training it's not how you train dogs at least in in my opinion 
Um, and a lot of dog trainers get stuck in these particular yeah. yeah, it makes sense when so, you sort of think of it yeah. like that because fifth and quad, yeah. well, you're thinking and, outside the box, in other words. Correct. Like, yeah. like they're exactly. going to Which is what you need to do. Yeah. And it's trained us in front of to get the feel. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Aim for the feel. Don't don't worry about what box you're in. Aim to obtain the feel because then that's just going to come naturally and it doesn't matter. Um, no, I like the name. Now it makes yeah. makes more sense. So I was a bit like, yeah. oh, I don't get it, but righto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's what it's about. Like if, if you want to become a good dog trainer, don't get obsessed about the four boxes because I see a lot of people get obsessed about that. Just try and develop a natural feeling of what you need to do for the dog. Um, I see a lot of people get stuck and and not make progress because they're too worried about sort of. The, the funny thing is a lot of people that get stuck in those boxes actually don't understand them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but anyways, that's a whole nother episode. Yeah. <laughs> how much time do we have? Yeah. <laughs> um, the club, mate, how, how long has the club been going? How to get started? Um, um, open to members or their open days? Yeah, look, we so Mondiering's the first sort of Mondiering um, seminar, I guess, that happened would have been seven years ago, probably more actually eight years ago. Um, there's been a few different Mondiering clubs pop up um, around the country. Um, our one, we sort of were, we met at a different club, all the guys in, in this club, and we all, all sort of had same values, um, and we all lived closer to each other. So we started this up about a year ago, um, but we've been training together for maybe three years, um, with some of the guys longer. So with some of the members, I've known them for seven, eight years, um, Craig, which is one of the original guys that started um, doing a bit of Mondio stuff as well. He's still in our club um, with us. He's, yeah, he's kind of one of my mentors as well. So we've been doing it for about eight years now. My first dog is just over eight. So, yeah, about that long. Um, it's taken a while to pick up, but we got have the knowledge in the country now. We have the skills. So people that want to start or want to join the sport now are very lucky because a lot of the groundwork sort of has, has been done. IGP has been around for probably over 20 years. So um, they have the knowledge, they have great trainers, they have good dogs. Um, that's still a bit in the, in the process from one year in. Um, and, and there's some great YouTube footage out there for anyone that might be interested in having a look and seeing what it's all about as well. Yeah, definitely. And there's some, so, you know, Michael Ellis from, from America, he put some good videos together. Um, I actually, my first, my level one that I competed in, I pretty much done off watching all his um, tutorials. So he, he has a lot of videos on Lieberg about training certain exercises. And um, back when I started, I watched all those episodes and I actually got my level one title just by watching his videos pretty much and helped with, a few guys here and guys that came from overseas that we've done seminars with. Um, but yeah, that we're kind of spoiled now with all the information. It's easily accessible. Um, and a lot of the groundwork is done, like I said. So there's there's clubs all around Australia that do monitoring. With our club specifically, we're pretty 
it takes a lot of time. So there's a lot of exercises to teach all the dogs and we, we want to keep it small enough. Once the clubs start getting too big, um, yep. you kind of lose, lose quality in the training. Um, but at the same time, you want to grow the sports and teach people to decoy and be good decoys. So that, that's kind of a hard one to balance. And um, yeah, we haven't worked that one out exactly yet, but yeah. we'll see what happens. <laughs> So if someone wanted to get into Mondia Ring or a bit of bite sports, how how would they go about starting? Like, you know, they've just got themselves a, a Mal or a, a Dutchie or a German Shepherd or even even yeah. you know, a Roddy and just wanted to get into a bit of bite work. How, yeah. how would you um, advise them to move forward? So th this is the biggest issue because everyone gets a dog first and then looks for a club. Um, and that's the wrong thing to do. Um, I did the exact same thing, so I can't be pointing fingers at nobody. Um, and that's why I ended up having to get another dog. And look, I did learn a lot from my first dog. But ideally, if anyone's listening and they want to get into bike sports, let me save you the headache. Go and find a club first. Watch what they do. Um, jump in a suit. Get a feel for it. Go for about a year, I'd say, at least. Um, see different dogs, make sure you know what you want, learn the different qualities in different dogs and different lines and um, get a better idea of what you want before you jump into getting a dog. Um, the biggest issue I see, we've had hundreds of dogs come in that want to do the sport, um, developed hundreds of dogs from like eight-week-old puppies to six-months-old a year and adults. And the biggest issue is that they got the dog before they came to us where we could have said or to any club um even if they have a local igp club it's best to go there and they can direct them in, in um in the right sort of direction but yeah that's that's sort of the biggest problem um because people get stuck with the dog that they have and they're it's a big decision to get a second dog um to continue the sports but that's how they should approach it find a club first, watch for a year, jump in a suit to make sure um, they're making the right decisions. And I'm assuming there you go with like get, get a bit of a feel for what you want to do and then pick the, a dog or genetics, go shopping on the genetics that's going to suit the sport you choose and the one that you actually sold into rather than having a taste of something and then go, oh, I actually want to do something else and then yeah. a dog doesn't suit, right? Yeah. Kind of like if we were... When I bought a yard dog, I wanted to go three sheep trolling. All right. Exactly. Well, a three sheep dog wanted to go cattle trolling. That was yep. dedicated for that, yep. right? Yeah, exactly. No different. So um, I'd love to have a Kelpie one day, but that's why I come to your place and I just watch <laughs> because I know nothing. I can't see what you can see. Um, and then maybe one day I might decide, yeah, look, I want to do this, but you want to you want to spend time watching first and learning um everyone um, else, yeah i just threw him in around yeah i said mate just jump in there and work this dog he goes mate i'm gonna break your part <laughs> so it's gonna be all right just get in there and he's like oh okay he's working he's like hey this actually isn't too bad goes, you fix everything that i'm fucking like now? i said don't worry about it mate she'll be all right yeah yeah I, I that the reason i said that to you is because all, all the sort of um, all the guys that are actively competing in monitoring, we still use all our dogs to train new decoys. So 
when you have some, someone that doesn't know what they're doing working your dog, they're going to cause issues. Um, there's no doubt about it. So I'm very aware of that. That's why I said to you straight away, I'm like, Dan, I don't want to do this because I don't want to set your training back, especially with a young dog. I got no idea what I'm doing in a yard. Um, you put me in a bike suit, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> that that dog will probably grab you too in a bite suit. I should <laughs> have a crack. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, she was making a fool of me in the yard, grabbing the shoe every two seconds. So. <laughs> so have you had a bit to do with with Kelpies um, through Dan and um, Dane and Nikki? Mm-hmm. Is there much um, you think that? this industry could be doing different in the starting of our pups? Um, another great question. So <laughs> I'm not sure how far you can get if you applied the same sort of concepts that we use in protection sports. But what I see is your sheep is our decoy. Um, and the sort of the skills that you need, you can you can teach some of them away from the sheep. Mm-hmm. and make it easier for certain dogs to 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 learn on the sheep um i mean nikki nikki west is doing great with her young dog amber and she's implemented a few of those um i guess out of the out of the box techniques but um the proof is in the pudding there but that doesn't mean it's going to work with every dog yeah um, so it's again it's about the field and that doesn't mean it's gonna that's gonna be the biggest difference and that's gonna make you um the best in australia or an australian champion there's a lot of other components that come into that as well um but i think the sort of where that would benefit the most is that it just gives another alternative so if you have a dog that isn't responding well to traditional methods of training or it's a bit softer or it needs a sort of different approach you have another option for a different type of dog um, i see the same problem with a lot of uh, protection dog people where they know only one way of training and they try and fit every dog into that style of training and then they they're always blaming the dog for the shortfalls of their training um, and then we have dogs that come to us um, after they've been to other people and it's like there's nothing wrong with your dog. They're just using the wrong technique for the wrong wrong yeah. dog. Um, I think that's where the biggest benefit is. You have more success with a bigger variety of dogs. Yeah. And you're going using that bit of that cookie-cutter approach kind of limits you as a handler to be able to experience different things and then actually learn from the dog in front of you, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it, it, it's very helpful for people that are new um, and don't have that feel yet. So I know with you, Dan, you could probably skip a lot of steps because you have that feeling and you can balance it out real quick and you can bring the dog back when you need to and you can you have that feeling with someone that doesn't. They'll, they'll either overbuild a dog um, too much or they'll crush it too much. So uh, I guess... Don't worry, I've made both of those mistakes myself, mate. Yeah, and, and that's how you, and so have I, and that's how you learn. And I think that's where the benefit is. If you if you um, have a bit of a different approach, you can still learn and not do as much damage to the dogs as you go. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
Right. And, mate, and obviously we've been speaking about Monday Ring a lot tonight. Mate, what what do you need to get started to do Monday Ring besides your dog, right? And we've talked about a bite soon, yeah. but what, what other apparatuses do we need to, <laughs> to be able to do this? So if you, if you look at a, a Mondeering trial, it'll look like a junkyard. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> yeah. And that's the purpose of it. There's a million different uh, environmental stuff around that are supposed to put the dog off. So you have scarecrows, for example, in a bite suit. Um, you have things that make loud noises. You have things that blow in the wind and look funny. The more stuff you have, the better. Um, you do need your your jumps, your three jumps, um, and you need a big a big plot of grass that you can have your field in. Um, but it's all about training under distractions and under um, sort of and showing the dog a lot of different pictures. So we get a lot of stuff from um, like council pickups and that people leave outside the house. We're like, oh, that'll be a perfect monitoring. Retrieve item and we just grab grab rubbish. So. Kid Barbie doll. Play <laughs> the big ones, you know. We're gonna retrieve a kid today. <laughs> it's it's funny what it's funny what dogs would um, freak out about. So we have a million things on the field, and then um, we had teddy bears and a whole bunch of stuff. And there was this one rocking horse that all the dogs would sort of freak out about. Um, yeah. And a lot of dogs would start acting aggressive towards it when they see it and freak out about it. Uh, at work, there's a certain plant pot in in it's got all these shapes and stuff on it, and every dog freaks out when it walks past it. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's never what you expect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And speaking on that, like you just mentioned about like freaking out and dogs getting aggressive, like there's a perception out. That you need these big cranky angles that just want to rip shit apart and kill everything, right? Like this is a hundred percent true, right? Like these things are <laughs> beasts. Like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, mate, let's let's uh, hear the reality. So the reality is, the dogs go through a temperament test before they can even start competing. So if you even want to start competing in these sports in they need to go through a pretty rigorous temperament test. So IGP has the BH, there's a traffic test in there. The dogs need to see people going past on bicycles. They need to walk through crowds, multiple people walking around and they need to be just neutral and social. Same with monitoring. We have a temperament test. The dog needs to be sound with environmental stimuli, the loud noises, umbrellas, people walking around. We recall the dogs out of groups as a person that doesn't even know the dog sometimes holds a leash in, in depending how the judge sets it up. So the number one thing, if the dog is not stable, you can't even start competing in these sports. Um, uh, yeah. A lot of people do think that the dogs are aggressive and all that sort of thing, but in reality it's, you need the opposite. Um, if you want a good sport dog. And a lot of people also think that we get our dogs from the police, but it's actually the opposite. It's the police that come to the sports people to look for dogs. <laughs> so, Can you want to explain why that is the case? Yeah, so I think the government departments, they don't have the time to maintain all these pedigrees and know where the dogs came from and do such rigorous training to know which dogs are, are good and which dogs aren't good. Um, some of them do have their own breeding programs, 
But I know with a few people that I've spoken to, it's a big um, time waster sometimes because they don't know what the dog's going to be like at 12 months. Um, so it's a big waste of taxpayers' money as well. Um, it's a lot easier for them. We're doing a lot of the, the hard work for free because we're obsessed about dogs and we want to train dogs and we, and we want to um, sort of see different breedings and what combinations and we keep a log of all this stuff. So it's very easy for the police or military or whoever to say, hey, I need this type of dog um, or I want a dog out of this bloodline and we have it all there. Um, it saves them a lot of money, it saves them a lot of time. A lot of dogs that aren't suitable for sports go into police. So I was recently training with somebody and he wanted to get rid of his dog. His dog was still pretty young, but we've done all the foundations the same way we would for a sport dog. For me, it's it's the same in the early days before we go into a specialization. We kind of just started specializing with him, but yeah, he ended up sending him to Victoria Corrections. And they were ecstatic with the dog. They're like, they wish they could have had more dogs like him. Um, but yeah, it's much easier for them. Um, the sports also, I mean, if you win in a competition, it doesn't mean you have the strongest dog or it's good for breeding, but it also doesn't mean you have the strongest dog if you lose a competition. So like I said before, the dog needs to be able to maintain high levels of control and still perform. Um, and that takes a lot out of the dog and we do all that testing for them. So you see all the control in, in, in the bite sports that the dogs have, and they still want to bite. Um, pretty sure if you breed out of those dogs, you're going to get good enough police dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people think you have to be hard on these dogs and you're going to use your tools in hard ways, mate. Do you want to, Talk about some of the tools that you guys use and how you use them. Yeah, definitely. So with the tools, I mean, there's a lot of people that want to ban tools and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, Actually, and we'll touch on that and the um, some of the, after we talk about these tools, bit the repercussions that could possibly happen if some of these tools are banned too. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is I think a lot of the people calling for this, they're uneducated. They think that the tools are used in a cruel way but if someone wants to be cruel to their dog they don't need a tool to do it um they're going to kick the dog they're going to throw the dog they're going to lock it in a kennel for a week um and not do and not take it out that's worse than anything any sort of physical punishment or correction you could deliver to the dog because you're not satisfying it mentally um so taking all these measures isn't really going to prevent anything um sometimes it makes it worse um, as you can see from overseas, people go to different sort of measures. Um, but with with these dogs, they, it's not that you need to be hard on them, but they need to have clearer guidance from young. And if you start from young and you're clear with your boundaries and fair, they they sort of they they know they have, they know they ex what what's expected of them. Um, my dog's here laying next to me, so. <laughs> sleeping um you don't need to be hard on them they're and usually people that are getting them are experienced i guess or not nowadays but um they typically know better and like i said training methods have changed so um the approaches we take are a lot um 
not necessarily softer, but a lot clearer to the dog. So there's not not, not as much confliction in the dog. Yeah, exactly. I know an IGP if your dog looks like it's suppressed at any time, you actually um, point it down for that. Is that the same in Mondia Ring? Um, so in Mondia Ring, the attitude of the dog isn't isn't scored, but you can get GA points removed um, if your dog is constantly avoiding you or if it's if it's pissing on the field and, and stuff like that, you can get GA points. But uh, in IGP, the emotion is is um, taken a lot more sort of seriously. The other thing is the obedience in wandering is not that it's it's short, but the focus is elsewhere. So um, if you've thrown a weed item out that your dog has never seen before and it's ran out to retrieve it, your dog may look a little bit stressed. And it's not necessarily because you have added a lot of pressure in your training. It's because the dog is seeing a different picture. So it's very difficult to um, score the dog's emotion um, yep. in those sort of scenarios. Does that make sense? You might, in your healing pattern, there might be a distraction right next to you and you walk past and the dog pins its ears back and goes, oh, shit, what's that? Um, that's not necessarily because of the training. That's because of the testing and the trial. So, um yeah, but the other thing is in monitoring, the dogs need to trial with no equipment on whatsoever. So your dog needs to be reliable without any tools. Um, so no no collar, no lead, not, nothing. nothing on it at all. Yeah. No, no harness. Yeah. So if you, if you use a lot of tools and you're reliant on tools and you're harsh with the tools, it's not your dog's not going to necessarily perform on the trial field as well. Um, yep. So it's definitely not the approach that we take. Um, our dogs need to be motivated to do the behaviors we want them to do. There's still clear guidelines of, hey, don't do this, that's naughty, but that's not what the bulk of the training is. That's 1%. Yeah, 100%. And, mate, with, with the um, – in a lot of movies there now, you're seeing um, like the John Wicks and there's a new movie with Will Smith coming out and you're seeing males, uh, Malamars everywhere in these movies – are you worried for where the Malamar is heading? Yeah, I think that ship's already sailed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I get a lot of inquiries all the time with um, people that have Malinois and they're like for training inquiries. And 90% of them, I'm like, you did not need this dog in your life. Yeah. No different to cattle dogs and and kelpies so yeah. a lot of people get them and they destroy their life they become obsessed about the wrong things they start biting people um it's no different yeah absolutely mate and do you want to touch a little on you mentioned hand earlier mate and you're training dogs for a year full time now after you got out of carpentry mate what 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 brought that on and how what would you do um so funnily enough, I actually went for a job interview there ages ago when I first started training. Um, and one of the guys that was training at the club with me back then, um, he was good friends with the CEO. They'd done their dog training certificate together with the CEO at Hanrock. So I kind of met him briefly there. I didn't end up, end up working there. Um, 
I moved houses and then I had to leave my my job because all all my work was in North Sydney. So I needed something else to do. So I was just flicking through Seek and um, I seen them advertising. So I applied for a job there and they called me straight away and hired me. Um, there was a lot of issues there, but I've been there pretty much six months now. Um, I've now moved to the head dog trainer role. Um, we're working together with Haley, which she's moved to a national head national training role now. Um, but we're kind of restructuring everything. We're changing what we offer, how we offer it. Um, we're changing sort of our, we're structuring the training approach and everything a lot better. The CEO is a great guy. He's super passionate about dog training. So he's, he's really involved in it. Um, we're doing the open day. Like we have you coming out there and do some stock dog stuff. So we want to educate the community. Um, ideally to prevent things like this happening where the wrong people get a Kelpie, the wrong people get a cattle dog, the wrong people get a Malinois um, and sort of prevent those issues from the root of the problem, which is lack of education. Yeah. And what's an average, and I think that's a great initiative, mate. What's an average day look like for Demi at the moment? Oh, it's pretty full on. So um, I think at the moment I have a, eight dogs allocated to me that I need to train every day um, and send update videos to clients and all that. But because we're in the process of restructuring everything, we also have a lot of meetings. There's a lot of admin stuff, a lot of inquiries that come through. Um, hopefully we're going to streamline that a lot better. I'm working pretty well with our facility manager now. So to get all that stuff sorted and with, with Haley, but yeah, it's a, it's a work in progress, but we definitely want to, um, we want to be leading the industry and cooperating with um, other great dog trainers, organizing seminars and all that sort of stuff. So that's why we're organizing the open day, like I said before. Um, but yeah, my days are pretty busy. My, my dog gets um, less than half of what she used to get these days. <laughs> No, very cool, mate. Very cool. Mate, is there a message that you would like to put out to dog owners out there? Um, yeah, I, th I mean, I think we've covered a lot of them. Um, but th definitely do your research before you go and get any working dog, not just a Malinois or a bite dog. Um, do your research so you know what you're getting into. Um find people that are knowledgeable, people that have runs on the board um, and learn as much as you can before you, you dive into it. I think that that's a yeah pretty big problem um, with the current pet dog industry. Just people are just getting the wrong dogs and unsuitable homes um, for working breeds. Great advice. Great advice. Mate, um, we're not going to let you go that easy though. <laughs> Last question as always. Would you rather fight one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks? And why? <laughs> what kind of duck is it? Up to oh. your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> the Pekin duck, the good Chinese duck. Yeah, yeah. Do I get a weapon? <laughs> Do I have a weapon of choice? Oh, I haven't been asked that oh. one yet. <laughs> I think I turned them into Suvlaki. 
Yeah, I was thinking like a big duck will fill up my freezers. Cool. Demi, thank you very much for your time, mate. Um, okay. really appreciate you jumping on tonight and having a yarn with us. And um, especially something different. And uh, I know we've had a well, I myself had a few people ask about different things in bite work. Um, and I'm sure that you answered a few questions there, mate. So Thanks for jumping on. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hopefully the... I get some weird conversations, eh? Uh, and to everyone listening back, um, please remember we learn every day. The day we stop learning will be a sad one for all of us. Thank you. Have a great night. Love it. Cheers, mate.